The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This. I am pleased to announce that we have a guest interviewer for this episode. Haley has interviewed several experts on the topic of social emotional learning and trauma-informed education. Haley, would you introduce yourself and tell us what interested you in learning about this topic and participating in the podcast? Yeah, so thank you for having me. My name is Haley Kisner, and I am a senior at um, Emporia State University in Emporia, Kansas. I actually just changed majors, so I was an elementary education major in the Block 1 program, so pretty, um, pretty far into my degree, but um, actually within learning um, about the brain and more of the psychology and the neuroscience behind um, really trauma, it really inspired me to get more into that. And so I've actually switched my major to psychology and I'm happy to pursue school psychology right now. So that's where I'm currently at in my degree, but I'm still here at Emporia State and worked along with Ms. Gerleman, my professor for my special ed and trauma classes. And we just were able to collaborate through my honors contract with the Honors College to set these podcasts up and meet these people. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being our guest interviewer. For our listening audience, I think you will appreciate Haley's expertise in asking questions as she interviews our different experts on the topic of trauma-informed education. Well, congratulations on uh, your plans at Emporia State University, Haley. Thank you. Thank you. In today's episode, Haley is interviewing Michael McKnight, who has many years of experience working with students in special education, labeled emotionally disturbed, or even just difficult children. And he shares his strategies for how to be a better educator, how these students have had trauma impacting their learning. I'm sure you're going to enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening. So I wanted to kind of start off with Eyes Are Never Quiet um, and kind of what inspired the title inspired your writing of that book kind of what was your thinking you know like how did that how did that process begin I believe Lori came up with the title eyes are never quiet certainly I'm you know I think uh, uh, what what we were thinking about was kind of uh, Lori had experience with uh, emotionally troubled uh, students I had a lot of experience with it and and uh we certainly um, both recognize that this is not an easy population to teach. Um, they're, they're still really probably uh, one of the least included uh, categories of special ed if they even get label, labeled special education. And it took us a while. I mean, I think it took me a good, until I got to Vision Quest where I actually not only taught uh, on, on, out in Arizona, but actually got to live with these young people and actually uh, participated in some of the group work that was going on in that program and began to, to hear stories about their lives. Uh, and, and really uh, that's where the, the look listening underneath the behavior comes from because I think often what we get stuck on is just the surface behavior of these young people which is usually, usually goes in one of three directions. One is the externalizers where their, their anger and hostility just go, go directly out to everyone. 
Um, you got internalizers where that uh, that they still get angry, but the the anger is directed inwardly, and we see that we see uh, see kids with high levels of depression. Uh, kids that are cutting as young here in New Jersey when I go around to schools as young as third grade. Externalizers, internalizers, and then then those other kids. Uh, uh, I call them PSAs. All these kids are in a persistent state of alarm, but these kids actually look like they have ADHD. They're all over the place. They're scattered kids, but, but they certainly don't have ADHD. These are traumatized kids. And, and the pain underneath that behavior uh, is really what began to shift my thinking kind of early in my career, thank goodness. But certainly the first three years of trying to teach troubled adolescents was uh, quite honestly a nightmare. <laughs> Uh, I really struggled and and, uh, really kind of um, even after I had a formal master's degree in special ed, really had to, was lucky enough to find uh, a few key mentors that uh, that I'd like to even mention. One, Dr. Larry, Dr. Larry Brentrow from uh, Reclaiming Youth International. Uh, worth a Google, uh, 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 and um, Dr. Nicholas Long, who um, who started the Life Space Crisis Intervention Institute. Nick's now 94, and Nick, uh, yeah, Nick had, uh, came out of a background of working with troubled kids in Detroit way back, way, way back, um, and I began to um, uh, to see that there was something, um, both of those guys come out of the tradition of psychoeducation. Uh, and it's a law, it was a lost tradition, particularly, certainly when I was in school, I think it still is, uh, of really taking a look at what's underneath that behavior, what's driving this behavior, what are the patterns of thinking and behavior of, of troubled kids. And it's just been uh, uh, fun to be able to learn, learn from them and get to share some some of their work. They were that meaningful uh, and, and still do some excellent work. Awesome. 94, that's crazy. <laughs> and that, yeah, you <laughs> know, you, awesome. get a, you get a sense too. Um, there's always been troubled kids around, you know? I mean, they've been around forever. Um, and I've done uh, some searching backward to folks that, that really... Uh, uh, really have been working with with troubled kids forever, including including Maria Montessori. Right, Montessori worked with with troubled kids in, uh, uh, way back when. Um, she actually even identified internalizers and externalizers. We've lost a lot of that in our in the way we prepare our teachers. For in sure. most places, I'm not familiar with your school, but, but <laughs> no, I think that's places. a pretty universal universal uh, idea. So when it comes to, you know, the concept of neuroscience and discussing that these new concepts are not necessarily new concepts, but bringing those to light, um, I guess I kind of wanted to start with what kind of perked your interest? I I know you said that you majored in general ed and then special ed, um, and then Lori had the neuroscience part and you're kind of connected to each other. Um, But did you have any neuroscience background or interest, or did you just see how this could benefit you in your teaching, or what was that process? Uh, the process was um, 
I, I had a little bit of neuroscience in my background, but the process was, it really allowed me to, to understand what was happening in the brains and bodies of kids. I had come to, to the idea of, you know, uh, through, through my work with Nick and Larry and, and some other folks uh, of best practices for these young people, but we really didn't have the brain science. Uh, it wasn't there. It, uh, it was missing. When Lori became interested in it and really started, started going down that path and um, she has a conference at Butler every year and she brings in some just great people I saw uh, I saw Bruce Purry there uh, Steve Porges was there I mean really great folks and we you know uh, I think we both learned at the same time about you know how the brain works uh, what's going on in the brains and bodies of our most troubled kids and what that toxic stress does so it really fits so well together because it, it, it brought the science to, to what others always considered, oh, you know, don't treat those kids too nicely. Uh, don't smile till Christmas, which is still around. But so we now know that the, the human brain is not fully mature until 25 five to 30 years old. So none of us are working or teaching with fully mature brains. We know that um, the toxic stress and trauma changes the brains and bodies of these kids. And, and in effect, we know that they're in a persistent state of alarm. You know, we really want to take a look at, you know, what, what needs to be done with a, with a young person that is carrying in that level of stress and trauma that they're always, uh, sitting in their midbrain in that amygdala area in that persistent state of alarm. And until we create a state of relaxed alertness, which really is what when the brain works its best, we could be teaching great lessons. These kids aren't going to, going to learn. So I think it kind of really was a nice fit together and spending a lot of time on even um, not only uh, learning about their brains, but our own and how contagious, right? Feelings sure. and emotions are. Then we begin to think about discipline and classroom management more in the way of regulation. How do we regulate kids? How do we regulate ourselves? I think of teachers in classrooms as weathermen, right? We have, you know, so we're creating the weather in the classroom. And Lori brings some just really simple, fun things to do to uh, the, her brain intervals used to, to wake the brain up, right? So when you know, when kids are a little sleepy, throw one of those in. Uh, and the focused attention practices, which really calm the, the, the brain and body down. So we share that with teachers and they can integrate that into, into their procedures, their routines and rituals. So it's not a program. We didn't want to give teachers another thing to do. Their plates are way full. This was really about uh, just giving them some tools and really also teaching uh, kids about their brains and bodies. I love is, that. It's been fun. I think, yeah, I think it's so, I, I know this has not always been the norm, but like teaching the students young about our brains so they know what our emotions do rather than like in high school biology. Um, I think that's super important and something that um, I'm excited to do for sure. But I kind of wanted one thing when you were talking about that made me think when you were talking just a second ago. Mm -hmm. So in high school, I used to be involved in like a lot of prevention and like, you know, Red Ribbon Week and like those things. I don't know if they do that in your community, mm -hmm. but um, it made me think with your book and how you said like getting really to the real behavior of the reason why they're using those things to cope mm -hmm. rather than, you know, the trauma, you know. So it just anyway. 
Thank you. For no, that. You're absolutely right, yeah. though. I mean, you know, underneath a lot of those things, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, human beings use a lot of different things to, uh, if you think about it through the lens of regulation, to regulate themselves in different ways, some of it healthy, <laughs> Uh, exercise, uh, those kind, and some of it really not not too healthy at all. So yeah, that I think thinking, just thinking about regulation and and what co-regulation really is, uh, and the fact that we need co-regulation our whole lifespans. This isn't just about kids. Uh, whenever a human being is upset, uh, hopefully they have a group uh, that, or someone in their lives that can help co-regulate them. We do it all the time with our kids. We do it all the time with uh, our significant others and friends. So, so it's a shift in really thinking about something that we do quite naturally. For sure. So I loved this little part in your book, and I'm sure you know it, but I'm going to read it for no, our nice for audience. Um, you said, adverse experiences that lead to feelings of isolation, rejection, and mistrust can be sudden or subtle, but the neurobiological changes caused by negative experiences prompt our brain to create a fear response. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. And Yeah, you know, I mean, you look at the human nervous system, and, and again, I talked about uh, a lot of young people being in a persistent state of alarm, and that really begins to tr uh, to downshift the brain the top part of the brains where all all our thinking is all our language is the mid part that emotional part of the brain once we downshift in there that's our fight flight kind of re uh, you know so we're triggered uh, fight flight or freeze right so it's three three different kinds of things fight flight um you know, I think most people know that, you know, our bodies change and, you know, we get flooded with hormones. We're ready to, to really, uh, you know, be on guard. And, and that freeze response, which I think, you know, when Lori and I talk and, and, and I go around to schools, I think the now three years of this pandemic, we're seeing a lot of students uh, in, that, in that shutdown freeze response uh, even more than fight flight, because that, you know, it's almost like that pandemic fatigue, uh, the, the freeze response is that shut down, almost it looks depressed, almost sad. So, so you know, again, they're, they're that, that internalization kind of response. So, so that's kind of where we see it. And then how do, how do we begin to change those responses, right? How, how do we intervene whether the child is locked in a fight flight kind of uh, situation or in that, in that more freeze response? For sure. So you had talked about trauma and uh, the traumatic events, they stay within your nervous system. And you had talked about that concept, um, which was new to me when I read it. So like, I didn't really realize that the trauma continues to live in your nervous system after it occurs, which makes sense. How would you recommend like me as a pre-service teacher or pre-service teachers um, or first year teachers listening to this? Like, how can we support kids that are going through their trauma journeys as they're, you know, in the classroom? Well, one of the first things I think we can begin to think about is really I think the, the practices that we talk about using are good for all kids. So we don't really have to identify, oh, here's my trauma kids and here's what I'm gonna do with them. 
and here's my other kids. Uh, schools sometimes have a tendency to go down that route. Let's, let's recognize everybody and then create intervention plans. Uh, we kind of have a, a more universal way of thinking about that. And I think what we, what we look at is the practices that we're gonna use uh, in our classrooms are good for all kids. You know, what we talk about doing with our more troubled kids is dosing them more and giving them more. And what are we giving them more of? Well, we really wanna make connections. They need to uh, that felt sense of safety. All kids need that. We do it quite naturally, hopefully in the classroom. But when we have kids that seem a little bit agitated, a little bit stirred, we want to dose them more. Uh, we want to uh, make those kids, we want to connect with them more so they have that felt sense of safety and a predictable adult to do that. So often with schools, we may be working with schools, we, we create check-ins and check-outs with certain kids that are really your like top tier kids that are really struggling. Um, we can do those kind of things. A lot of our practices are really designed for everybody. So one of the shifts, and, and uh, Alex Cervant Vanette talks about this in, in her recent book is, uh, is a shift from that re reactive stance in which we identify and identify our traumatized kids uh, to just more of a supportive, proactive approach with every kid. Here's how we treat kids here, uh, and and uh, and 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 everybody can benefit from those those practices. Uh, everybody enjoys brain breaks. Everybody enjoys learning how to breathe and learning about their 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 bodies. Um, so uh, the other shift I, I think that, that is brought up in this book um, uh, is, is really the shift from a savior mentality in which we see ourselves rescuing broken kids. Quite honestly, you know, we're not going to be able to save a lot of the kids that are in front of us. We may hear how tragic some of their lives are, how, how discombobulated and dysfunctional it seems uh, Yet, you know, yet our systems are all overwhelmed. We're not going to be, you know, flying in there and saving kids. Uh, what we can do, though, is really uh, 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 forgetting about the rescuing piece and really dosing these kids with high levels of unconditional positive regard. Um, the resiliency research is quite clear. Human beings are really, you know, quite resilient. Those connections matter. Um, and we want to really make sure that these kids get those connections and do it systematically. Right now, it's, it's teachers have always connected with kids. Right now, though, we really want to take schools through act activities where which kids are we missing here? Which kids are, are not getting enough? How do we set this up? How do we pass them from grade level to grade level or elementary school to middle school to high school? So they're not floundering for a year to, to get those, those connections. Those are kind of, we wanna weave kind of a, a web of support uh, intentionally around our, our, our most troubled kids. I love so that's that. a shift I think that it's helpful to think about too. For sure. So the other thing I got to say too is, is we want to also shift the way of thinking this is only the teacher's job. 
right? This is a really whole, a whole school job. And that's part of why Lori and I started doing resiliency team trainings. Uh, we do them in the, in the summers where schools uh, send us uh, teams of educators, uh, uh, counselors, whoever they want to send, uh, but an administrator must come too. And we spend three days sharing information with those teams and they're tasked to go back and turnkey it in their schools. Uh, so we really want, want to uh, begin to create those webs and we need uh, uh, the whole, uh, whole group involved. Um, so that's kind of fun to do. And recently we've even started doing community resiliency teams where we're talking about this with coaches, with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts group, churches, uh, you know, dance groups. Uh, uh, resilience is created by a web of support, uh, right? And, 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 uh, and, and that's been fun to kind of work out from the school into the, into the, into the community around the, around the school. I love that. Um, would you say for a teacher that would want to implement these strategies, like how do you encourage, like, or what tips would you give to an educator that maybe doesn't have that parent buy-in or that admin buy-in? Like how, how could they implement those without that? Or what are some strategies? To include that. I think one of the first things, uh, you know, we work on with teachers is their own brain and body state. You know, how do you regulate yourself? What kind of routine do you have um, uh, in the morning before, before you get into classrooms uh, to, to slow yourself down, regulate yourself, um, be able to, to kind of put Put your life uh, with all whatever's going on with that on hold for a bit so that you can go into school. And, and I, I like a phrase from, uh, from Nick Long and be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Can you regulate yourself? Uh, and that, that so, so what routines or practices can, can you do as a teacher? Uh, because it takes a calm brain and body to calm another brain and body. So, so we start there with new, with any teacher. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you begin to be able to do that um, uh, so that you're not reacting all day, you're responding. And that's hard, right? So, so we, you know, we work a lot of times with, with those predictable routines, those particular procedures and weaving some of these strategies in. Because if I'm teaching kids to do breath work, which I even do in my college classes, right? Uh, I gotta be breathing too, right? As I demonstrate it, it's kind of fun that way. And, and we start kind of there and really, having teachers think about, you know, dosing kids. We talk about, you know, being uh, four to one positive comments to negative comments, uh, really kind of creating that, that positive sense of, of group dynamics uh, in the classroom. So that's kind of where it starts. Uh, and it starts with us. For sure. You segued right into what I wanted to ask you. Uh, do you implement any of these strategies or practices or mindsets into your college classroom at all? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's great fun. Yeah. Um, 
and I, I teach, uh, uh, I, I teach in, uh, uh, the course I teach at Stockton is inclusive education. So, uh, but, but it's, um, Stockton is, uh, it gets, it gets um, uh, not just teachers in it. I have uh, people that are in, in, in uh, juvenile justice, uh, social workers, uh, art majors. So it's kind of a, a, a course that anybody can kind of take. So I spent a lot of time teaching about the nervous system, our brains and bodies, uh, just like we talked about, uh, weaving these activities in, into class. Uh, they're fun to do, uh, you know, and and uh, and just kind of a, a you know just just fun. And and I think uh, you know we start asking uh, asking uh, teachers and people that are becoming teachers um, to really think about how do we create that space. Uh, where the where the kids in front of us are in a state of relaxed alertness to learn, stressed brains just don't learn. Exactly, I love that. It's a good. So it's fun. It should be on a shirt. <laughs> uh, yeah, it could be. <laughs> so you in your book, you and Lori provided like a library full of like intervention strategies um, that are really brain aligned. Do you have a favorite? Um. Yes, I do have a favorite. I'll do one with you, okay? Oh, okay, uh, let's do it. This is designed to um, to wake the brain up. So it's, you know, it's uh, late afternoon here in New Jersey and, and moving that way. So uh, one hand uh, put up a peace sign okay. and the other hand put up an okay sign. Okay. Okay, when I say go, we're gonna, we're gonna switch back and forth. This will, oh, the peace sign becomes the okay sign Okay, okay sign becomes a peace sign. Ready? Okay. And we keep yes. going. Go. <laughs> so it's really hard, right? Yes. It's hard to do it first. And that's on purpose. Kids laugh. Uh, they're all like having fun. But then we talk about what, what's going on and why is it hard? It's hard because we're literally going across the brain and we're, we're literally don't have a real good pathway there. But if we practice it, we'll get faster and faster. So as we practice, you know, and then they want to practice, they want to, you know, they want to try it, they'll get faster and faster. And we we're able to tell them anything you want to do well requires that, that kind of repetition because you're literally rewiring pathways in your brain. And every connection you make with another person is rewiring your brain. So we kind of use those activities to have fun, wake kids up, but also talk about, you know, what's going on in their, in their brains and bodies as they're doing it. So it's fun. I love that. Thank you. That was awesome. It's kind of fun. Yes. It reminds me in high school, we had to learn how to juggle at the end of the semester. And uh, that, that reminded me of that. So, yeah. So we do all kinds of things. Um, uh, you know, uh, one of the other favorites I have is rock, paper, scissors, mm -hmm. uh, as a group though. So, uh, so we work it down as, so you pair everybody up, they do the best of three on rock, paper, scissors. Uh, if you lose, um, you're the person that beat you, you then cheer for as they move on to the second round and then the third round, and then we crown the rock, paper, scissors champion, and we have groups of people cheering for each other. Aww. Just kind of a lot, a, a nice way to create that, that group cohesion that we want in class, and it's fun. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, so, and fun is a great thing um, to deactivate stress. For sure. I could see how a group of little kids would love that. That could get kind yeah, of crazy. So group but... <laughs> of, of, of college students. Oh too. yeah, for sure. Thinking in my lecture hall, that would be kind of crazy, but that would be fun. It'd be a big one. It's fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you for that. I appreciate you uh-huh. sh- sharing that. Stay tuned to hear about how Michael McKnight got started in education and his collaboration with Lori DeSaltas for writing the books. So I, I read the book and I kind of established some questions, but I would love just to have this go on the flow. If you wanted to start, tell me how you got like into teaching, what inspired <laughs> that? What brought you to where you are at today? I became a, a teacher in an interesting kind of way. I went to community college first. I did two years at community college. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And in, uh, during that time, I, I worked, I always worked a lot around recreation and playgrounds and, and I enjoyed playing with kids. So I decided, hey, well, maybe I'll be a teacher. So I, uh, I did two years at community college and then I went to school in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Millersville University, where I got a dual degree in regular ed and special education. And really at the time thought I would just be teaching, you know, regular ed. This was way back in uh, the late seventies. I, I, at the time, I didn't realize that special ed had even just started. Right. So, so that's how little I knew about what, what I was doing, but long story short, um, I got a dual degree. Uh, I ended up taking a um, special ed position because I really enjoyed my student teaching in, in special ed. And, and then I went on to get a master's degree in special ed with a concentration in what our system often still calls emotionally disturbed children. And then I started to teach uh, and I, I spent three years in the Lancaster area. And, um, and then I, I actually spent some time in Arizona teaching juvenile delinquents on a wagon train of, of all sorts. Uh, it was a program called Vision Quest. They were taking uh, adolescents out of jail and, and putting them out into the wilderness and kind of like a, um, a program with the conception of, you know, we're going to drop these mostly urban kids, including me in the middle of nowhere where it's dark. And uh, so that was a great experience also. <laughs> so I ended up teaching uh, special education in three states uh, for 14 years all emotionally troubled adolescents, troubled kids in the, in the adolescent range. Then I became um, an administrator at a special services school district here in New Jersey, uh, where I was responsible for programming for um, all troubled kids ages 5 to 21 removed from the regular setting, basically kicked out of their regular schools. And I did that for a little bit over a decade. After that, I, I worked for the Department of Education in New Jersey here in Cape May County with all our local schools. And I just recently retired from that. And I'm now an adjunct in, uh, instructor at, at a local university here, Stockton University. And I do practicing teacher uh, professional development. So awesome. That's, uh, yeah, not too bad. <laughs> You've been all Real over. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Awesome. Well, thank you. So I'm curious as I was going through the book and I'm also, so I'm doing a book study as well with Lori's book, Connections Over Compliance. So I read like the both at the same time. And um, I'm curious, how did you meet each other? 
we actually met each other online, uh, of all things. Lori's in Indiana. Um, I had to really, uh, when we first met, we, I think it, would, it was either on Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, and what drew me to Lori was um, she had written a book prior to meeting uh, me, uh, me meeting, and I love the cover of that book. And uh, one thing led to another. Lori is really fast. We talked a few times, and before I knew it, I was going out uh, to to Indiana to wow. do some work uh, with her. Uh, she uh, was running a conference at that time at Marion University before she moved to Butler. So, okay. so it was uh, it was a pretty quick meeting. We hit it off pretty. Uh, pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, she, Lori um, was at the time really getting into uh, neuroscience and education, educational neuroscience. My background with troubled kids was I brought a a couple of things that that I learned along the way, and it it kind of fit together pretty well. Uh, So, so we met that way. And um, we've written two books together since, and we continue to, uh, to train together and separately. So we, it's been a great relationship. Awesome. How many books have you written? I probably should have just two. <laughs> uh, I've okay. just written two co-authored with Lori. Before I met Lori, I really had not even thought about writing a book. Yeah. I really like teaching. I love doing professional development. I've been doing it forever. I like working with teachers, either beginning teachers or practicing teachers. We quickly went down the Let's Write Books uh, journey, and it, it's been really fun. Uh, so I had a great time uh, doing that with her. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a great writer. I enjoyed your book very much. So if you want to write more, I'd be happy to read them. My, I might take you up on that. <laughs> okay. Myself. Sounds good. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you'll get notifications part two where Michael McKnight shares even more insight on how it can make an impact on students who are struggling. We hope that you have enjoyed the podcast and will share with other educators about our program. You can subscribe on any of your favorite podcast platforms. If you want to write to us, our email address is hwtt at emporia.edu. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at hwtt underscore ESU. And you can find us on Facebook. Just search for How We Teach This. This episode was produced by Christy Dugan. And I'd like to recognize Dr. Zenny Colorado Reza and Terry Kaiser for their support. I'm Christy Dugan, and you've been listening to How We Teach This.